Welcome back to another month's episode of Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and I'll be the host of the next hour of programming. This month on Energy Voices, we're going to continue our recurring series on systems in transition, this this time looking at energy systems in transition through the lens of the global energy system. So our first interview of the day is going to be with my student energy co-founder, Kaylee Taylor, who's currently living in Geneva and working on the Sustainable Development Goals with IISD. Kaylee's going to walk us through how the tone has shifted recently more towards that of action and some of the innovative ways that the UN and affiliated organizations are trying to approach achieving the Sustainable Development Goals in a more innovative way. We're also going to have an interview with Santiago, who's the chair of the International Student Energy Summit that's taking place in June 2017 in Merida, Mexico. Uh, Santiago has a fantastic uh, background and experience in sustainable and renewable energy, uh, and also recently attended COP22 in Marrakesh, and will share with us some of his perspectives from being on the ground uh, in Marrakesh for the the follow-up event to COP21 in Paris. Santiago is also going to share with us some background information on what is happening with the International Student Energy Summit, uh, what to expect, and who some of the speakers he's most excited to hear are. And we'll also do a short teaser uh, of a pre-recorded speech from Santiago's most anticipated speaker for the event. So without further ado, we're going to kick things off with This Month in Energy, and then start off with Kaylee Taylor's interview on the Sustainable Development Goals and the UN process. Hi, Inner People, Kate here, keeping you up to date with energy news from across the globe. So here's the latest lowdown. According to a new report by the Economist Intelligence Unit, climate policies will continue decreasing fossil fuels as mainstream of global energy usage, despite Donald Trump's appointment as US President in 2017. The report expects that while the election of Trump as President is not likely to halt the gradual transition towards cleaner energy globally, it will nevertheless slow it down. The energy transition at a global level will roll on incrementally, with the EIU forecasting faster growth in renewable energy consumption compared to fossil fuels in 2017. Consumption of renewables, nuclear power and natural gas will continue to outpace that of coal and oil next year. The report also indicates that oil prices will average higher in 2017, with Brent averaging the barrel at US $56.50. While the rise of the liquefied natural gas market has accelerated the globalization of natural gas, the energy security implications of the transformation have attracted less attention. Through an extensive analysis of the global gas data, a new report from the International Energy Agency seeks to provide more transparency into the LNG market. There is no doubt that the global gas markets are well supplied today. While this is a positive for the global gas security, the new analysis from the first global gas security review released in Tokyo warns that the LNG markets are less flexible than is commonly believed. As hosts of this year's COP22 climate change conference in Marrakesh, Morocco, they have shown keen demonstration in its green credentials and has made this past COP the African COP. In the past year, 
Morocco has banned the use of plastic bags, launched new plans for extension of the urban tram networks in Casablanca and Rabat, started the process of replacing its old dirty fleet of buses and taxis, launched Africa's first city bike hire scheme, and has launched a new initiative called the Adaptation of African Agriculture to help the continent's farmers adjust to climate change. But by far the most attention has been to the development of mega infrastructure projects in the ambitious plan to transform the country's energy mix, including the start of a massive solar project, Noir, which is planned to produce 580 megawatts at peak when it is finished. In the Western Himalayas, the entire village of Hamel is powered by a small hydroelectric plant on the edge of the Shavel River. It produces enough power to light up to 100 homes at a time, ending the village's once endemic power cuts. Small hydro projects producing up to 25 megawatts have the potential to transform India's rural communities and are being driven by companies such as Vishnave Consultants, which completed the Hamel project in 2015. The Indian government says that by the end of March 2017, it hopes privately owned small hydro will be adding 7,000 megawatts to the national grid, enough to power more than a million light bulbs. 2016 is the takeoff year for Europe's ocean energy sector with the deployment of the world's first tidal energy farms in Europe and Canada. These pilot farms set the scene for a much larger project pipeline and the creation of a new industrial sector capable of delivering 10% of Europe's electricity and 400,000 jobs. Ocean Energy Europe foresees that by 2050, 100 gigawatts of ocean energy could be deployed in Europe, a game changer for Europe's electricity supply, contributing to Europe's reindustrialization, employment creation, energy security, and decarbonization. A Senate report has recommended that Australia should move completely away from coal-generated electricity, citing economic factors as primary drivers. It comes after a month after unplanned closure of Hazelwood, Australia's dirtiest coal plant, and before the unexpected closure of several others around the country. With the backing of both, the, both Labour and Green members of the committee, the report calls for a comprehensive energy transition and the development of a mechanism that would ensure coal-fired power stations close in an orderly fashion and with plenty of notice. Tesla shows its real power in the form of solar energy gift to Tayu Island. Now, this island is completely running on solar energy. The island is located in the unincorporated territory of the United States in the South Pacific. Previously, the island was completely dependent on diesel generators for electricity. In Solar City blog post, Tesla has revealed that Tayu Island is completely running on solar energy grid that is covered nearly 100% of the electrical needs for the island's individuals. That's it from me, but to keep up to date with energy news and topics, 
check out our monthly blog post on studentenergy.org. Cheerio! So to kick things off on this month's episode of Energy Voices, I'm beyond excited to welcome my student energy co-founder and one of my closest friends, Kaylee Taylor, to the show. Welcome, Kaylee. Hey, Sean. So where in the wonderful world of Kaylee Taylor are you reporting from today? I am reporting from Geneva, Switzerland, where I live and work now. And and so the last time we had you on the show uh, was to give us an overview of COP21 and the Paris Agreement and some of the nitty-gritty details and information on what is contained within the Paris Agreement. And it's almost, it's been more than a year since the Paris Agreement was signed. And, and I think it's a, a really appropriate time to sort of take stock of how the world and how the energy system is changing, uh, but beyond the headlines that were sort of derived in 2015 and 2016 with some of the major sort of announcements and diplomacy aspects. So uh, I I really want to have you on to sort of give us an overview of of why you're in Geneva, the work that you're doing, and and someone who's really involved in this process going forward, just sort of the lay of the land of, of what we're expecting now that these announcements have been made, because it tends to fall out of the limelight of media once we've made the big announcements and it moves more into the action side of things. So so maybe if you could just kick us off, what brings you to Geneva and what is it that you're working on, on over in Europe? Yeah, for sure. So as you know, Sean, when we started Student Energy, our goal was really to engage youth in the energy system. And part of that for, I think, all three of us co-founders was digging into the energy system ourselves. And part of my journey in doing that was really starting to see how so many things are connected in these systems. So when you look at energy, it affords people light so they can um, get more educated or it provides refrigeration for vaccines, which is a really big healthcare issue. So some of these really core development um, items, uh, I started to see how these were connected in. Also, of course, with climate and environmental impacts, you cannot deny that the energy system is intrinsically linked to those. So a big part of my journey um, over the course of student energy and into the next phase of my career was starting to see all of this connection. And that is ultimately what sustainable development is about. And that's what I'm here working in Geneva on. So I'm working with the International Institute for Sustainable Development, IISD, on a really innovative new project to engage members of the UN community, um, NGOs, academic institutions, the private sector in uh, tackling the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And and what how how are you you said you're you're working with these various groups and and trying to tackle these issues how are you trying to do that so so what is unique or different about what you guys are doing um, in trying to work towards the sustainable development goals? Sure. So uh, for listeners who aren't aware that the sustainable development goals are seventeen goals that paint a picture of what integrated sustainability look like for our planet. So they have economic, social, and environmental dimensions to them, and they're very comprehensive. 
Um, they, they have 169 targets underneath and over 230 indicators and they're building off of the millennium development goals. So a a big, you know, body of work that was done in the early two thousands. Um, and, and they focus on how we tackle these sustainability challenges from an integrated perspective and and coordinated perspective. So what we're doing here is working with the kind of big UN machine to engage in a more multidisciplinary way. Um, We're also trying to encourage innovation and fast failure and and speeding things up. Um, I, I heard an analogy the other day that the 2030 agenda is, um, you know, an absolute new territory to trek and and we don't have a map yet and we need to make that map up as we go. Um, and the pace that's needed to achieve it is very fast. And so that's what we're trying to do is, is to bring some innovative practices to um, the sustainable development agenda. It's always interesting to me, you, you sort of mentioned that, um, the the whole process leading towards some of these 2030 targets is so fast and then on the other hand you have some people who are saying oh by setting a 2030 or 2050 target we're there's no chance that we'll possibly meet the potential climate targets or have reductions in time so it's always so interesting to me to see how sometimes it feels like we're moving way too slow and sometimes it feels like we're moving way too fast and and to your to your comment about the sort of getting the un to get experience with failing fast how has that been going so far? How is the the approach you you use the terminology the UN machine um, and then fail fast in the same sort of breath? So how do you get large institutions and institutional money and and development agendas to be okay with the concept of failure? Yeah, I think it's going to be a process because everyone has really high expectations of this agenda because it was such a um, you know very um, what's the right word? It was a very broad process. It brought a lot of people together and, and, and it had a lot of consensus building that wasn't done in the past. And because it's been so widely accepted, um, people are hoping that it, it can be achieved. And the problem is the, the, um, mindset that will be required to achieve it does mean taking some risks. And and that's not something we've been comfortable, I think, with in the past. Um, so I think it's going to be a process. I think so far, what I've really been focused on is building solid relationships and finding the innovators within organizations. Because I think like anything, it comes down to individuals. And, and with Student Energy, we've always really been focused on you know, engaging youth and making them the next generation of leaders who are prepared for these challenges. And I think that that's the same thing within, you know, this kind of UN context as well is, is how do we find people who are willing to push the envelope a bit and, um, and empower them to do so. And, and I want to take a quick step back. So we've been sort of talking already about um, the sustainable development goals and the UN process, but you have such a unique perspective in that it was right around the, the time of the Paris Agreement was when you made your transition from student energy to working within the UN process. And, and I just love your thoughts on on what the major differences between the sort of pre-Paris Agreement world and the post-Paris Agreement world are. Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, I just, I do want to mention that the 2030 agenda, um, goal 13 is climate and there, it's the only goal with an asterisk beside it because it specifically references the Paris agreement. 
as being kind of fundamental to that goal. And, and then goal seven is, is the energy target, which is kind of the sustainable energy for all initiative within the UN. Um, and of course other elements as well, but, but really looking at, at, at energy. So within the 2030 agenda, you see, um, reference to, you know, very specific energy related and climate related topics. Um, and, and then in terms of what the world looks like post Paris, um, I mean, there's a couple different answers to that question. The first one is Paris was a huge win on many levels. The first being that it was COP21. So 21 years of work went into that moment. Um, And that's depressing in one sense, but exciting in another, because it really shows how much the, the landscape has changed. So, so that was, that was great. The other thing about Paris, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure Sean, you can, you can vouch for this was, it was a different conference in so many ways because everyone showed up to help. The private sector was there, you know, NGOs were there, academic institutions were there. Everyone was there and was like, we are here for you world leaders. We support this. We're willing to move. Entrepreneurs were talking about how they're going to make some of these things reality. It was it was also a galvanizing of people. Um, so, so that was really, really positive. Um, I, I, I would be amiss not to mention that that momentum was so strong until the U S election. And that was a really tough, tough day for, um, everyone in Marrakesh, which was COP 22. So the follow on conference. So maybe I'll just kind of explain what happened in, in the year between Paris and Marrakesh, but essentially what happened was 55% of the world's emissions and 55% of the world's countries were required to, to ratify the agreement. So, you know, many, many signed, um, I believe it was 197 or eight, uh, countries signed, and then it was 55%, um, needed to ratify in order to representing 55% emissions in order for the whole agreement to come into effect. No one expected that to happen before the Marrakesh conference. They thought it would happen at the Marrakesh conference and in kind of a surprise, um, a very welcome surprise moment, it reached it before a couple weeks before the, the agreement or sorry, the conference, the agreement was ratified. So going into that conference, um, there was going to be parties to the agreement and parties not part of the agreement, which totally changed the dynamics and also added a lot of pressure to parties who hadn't yet signed on. And that was really exciting. And it was going to be about talking about action and talking about um, a a big topic is finance and and loss and damage and and really getting into the nitty gritty of how we make this thing happen. Um, And then literally at the very beginning of the conference, uh, a staunch climate denier was, was elected into one of the biggest emitting economies on the planet, the second biggest, in fact. And so that, that really did stifle some of the, um, or, or, or it was a blow. I think, I think it, it, it didn't stifle too much because I think actually what happened is people got more passionate about making this happen. So I think what we're at, where we're at right now is a really positive place. Um, but it's, as you mentioned in your kind of preamble, it has moved from a time of negotiation and diplomacy and agreement setting to a time of action on the ground. How do we make this happen? How do we drive the investment? 
And that's a very different world than, than we were in. Um, I would say up until kind of September, 2015. So that's exciting. And it's interesting that even you bring up the sort of concern around the U.S. presidential election, but then the fact that there's still such massive question marks on what will or will not happen with the U.S. administration under a Trump presidency. You see examples where you, to your point, you sort of have seen China come out um, in recent months and be so aggressive on their climate um, focus and their investments and their sort of contributions as the largest uh, greenhouse gas emitting nation on earth. And then you've had recent examples where Elon Musk has become an advisor on renewable energy to the Trump presidency and and has been sort of messaging that there will be surprises coming. And so it's such an interesting time because it was so rewarding and sort of uplifting to see so many countries sign the Paris Agreement, so many countries ratify it early um, and momentum happening. And then it, it definitely is a question mark there. But I think there's still a lot that needs to be determined on what impact that will or will not have on the global climate and environmental movement. Yeah, sure. I mean, one, I heard someone say, this might have actually been the best thing that could have happened for the movement, because comfortable would have been a bad place to be. Um, and I don't know at this, I, th I think all of us are waiting with bated breath kind of to see what happens because um, if the U.S. doesn't act uh, and, and doesn't continue with some of the momentum it's on, it, it's going to be very hard to reach those targets because it's already very hard to reach those targets. Um, the U.N., environment program releases an emissions gap report every year, which basically says this is what's been committed to and this is what actually needs to be reduced to meet two degrees C. And now they're they're looking at what needs to be reduced to meet 1.5 degrees C. And, you know, there's still a gap and a pretty big gap at that. So it, it's already a tough target. Um, but I guess I'm optimistic because I really think the world works in these kind of tipping points. And, you know, I think technology changes quicker than we think. So right now it seems like a really daunting challenge, but I think if we get a, a little bit of momentum going and things start rolling, that it, it that it could have a, a massive snowball effect. And, and that's why I continue to work in this and why I continue to be excited about it because I think that that is what's going to happen and it's going to surprise everyone. Yeah. And you, you've touched on a few of these pieces where you're saying we're sort of moving from discussion and in the COP process perspective, 21 years of discussion uh, into action. And, and, and that's a pretty massive change that we've gone from hoping for decades that we could arrive at some sort of global agreement on how we deal with climate change um, to actually having uh, an agreement on paper and signed by 198 countries and ratified by the majority of the world. And so so how does that work, though? You've, you've met, again, you mentioned the, the UN machine um, and sort of the infrastructure required. How does that machine move from trying to seek consensus into trying to implement and meet some of the hundreds of targets and indicators that have been set out? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that this some of this might sound obvious when I say it, but it actually is really important. Um, the thing about a multilateral agreement of any sort, so the Paris Agreement, but then also the kind of multilateral consensus on the 2030 agenda is that that means the responsibility for action 
ultimately rests with national governments. And this is something we maybe don't think about too much because the UN kind of sits in this spot amongst those those countries and, and supports them in delivering. But ultimately, this comes down to the actions of individual countries and within that, how they support their business communities, how they fund research, what type of policy environment they put in place to, to let these things happen or to, to encourage these things to happen. So what action really looks like is, is A, um, helping those governments to, to set things the way that, that they need to be set. But part of that is you know, helping, uh, arming the business community with the information they need to contribute, um, trying to get as many people as possible to know about it because policymakers respond to what their constituents care about. Um, so, you know, there's, there's these multi layers in terms of, of where different groups act. And I think that that would be my biggest kind of thing that I would want listeners to take away is that, the UN is focused on supporting governments in action, but for example, NGOs like Student Energy are focused in, in fo uh, on helping people to um, participate. And that is equally important and really, really crucial to getting action. And, and the business community and entrepreneurs have a massive role to play as well. Um, I like to think that the 2030 agenda and and particularly the climate piece of it, if you look at Mark Carney and Mike Bloomberg's recent article about the business opportunity of and risks of, of responding to climate change are, are fundamental to running a successful business of the future. You know, these types of things can be looked at as a new way of, of assessing our markets and, and where trends are going. So I think that action happens on, on many levels and in terms of, of what that looks like tangibly, it's different for every organization and agency. Um, but maybe just to give a little bit of a sense of some of the big things, uh, financing. So, so how you drive finances to the right places and, and how you set up economic systems so that they properly value, um, you know, things that need to be valued. So for example, pricing carbon, things like that. So, so that's, that's one area. And then another area to become, this sounds so policy wonky, but one is, is honestly data and getting a better understanding of what's actually happening at the ground level um, and and seeing how things change and, and harnessing and using that data to um, hopefully encourage more action. And, and who are some of the groups that are trying to lead that to, to bring sort of data-driven decision-making to the development system? Well, there's actually a partnership called... Uh, the world's, oh goodness, now I, I can't think of the exact name because it's a bit of a long acronym, but it's it's the World Partnership for Sustainable Development Data, I believe. And it's a number of organizations who are working together to uh, try and get better data. So a couple things about the 2030 agenda that are important is that it's universal and it's kind of founding principle is no one left behind. So data is focused on starting with those who are the most vulnerable, um, you know, and this, this has a big um, climate and energy link because having access to energy and, and also uh, people who are most vulnerable are often most vulnerable to climate change as well. So getting an understanding of where they're at in the past, there was a lot of 
kind of data aggregation done. So it looked like we we're making progress. And in a lot of cases, we were globally, but there were some communities that were suffering or sliding back and, and they weren't being trapped, uh, tracked, sorry. So, so I think that um, there's, you know, a ton of work going on in data, uh, also big data and how you use, uh, you know, crowdsourcing of data. There's a lot of innovative thinking in that space right now. So one of the things that I, I, I have to point out is it's so interesting to hear so much of the startup ecosystem language. So data-driven data decision-making, fail fast, uh, innovation. There, there's so much of this this methodology and language that's coming from the startup ecosystem. And, and I have to ask, is that is that explicitly intentional to be learning from some of the, the most innovative companies on earth? Or, or how is that influencing and, and entering into this process? Oh, that's a good question. I, I haven't really thought about it in that sense, because I think what I see it more as is explicitly recognizing that we need to take a systems approach. And I think the reason a startup ecosystem kind of in general takes similar approaches is because they have to be nimble and they have to be responsive and systems respond very much to, you know, a single stimuli and, and change and, and, um, and, you know, alter themselves to, to whatever those different stimuli are. And it's complex. It's very complex. And in the past, we used to break things into boxes. You tackle energy, you tackle climate, you tackle poverty, you ta tackle education, you tackle gender roles, whatever it is. But now we're starting to see that all of these are connected. So I think where you're seeing a lot of that language come from is the first real recognition of the systems level change needed as opposed to individual silos. So we've been talking a lot of this from the sort of optimistic lens, but when you bring up some of these conversations around um, sort of change like a, a new stimuli and that stimuli could be things like the Paris Agreement showcasing that there we've reached a tipping point on a global consensus to climate change um, but and and you sort of indirectly discuss the fact that the traditional development system has been that individual organizations take their category of gender equality or education or maternal health and sort of silo themselves around that. So what are some of the negatives that you're seeing right now? Like that, that system is a multi-billion dollar entrenched ecosystem that is now at starting to want to work more innovatively. Um, but, but what are the things that you're seeing that are preventing that so far, or, or are you seeing anything that's preventing that from happening? Yeah, I think the biggest one is just crises. So the world is in a really precarious position right now. And there are some very immediate and real challenges that need to be addressed. Um, and, and a lot of energy needs to go into those. And th I think there's a, a push pull between what is done to fight kind of immediate humanitarian um, migration issues, for example, versus the longer term, um, deeper systemic, how you change systems. So I, I think that that is a, a big risk in our world right now, because we absolutely have some really crazy instability happening that needs to be addressed. But at the same time, we need to be thinking about the type of society we want to build. So 
I wouldn't say I've seen any necessarily negatives in terms of the way people are working. I think everyone is recognizing that it's important for them to have their areas of expertise and to, and focus so they can move things forward, but they no longer want to do it in a complete vacuum. They want, um, input from other groups. And I'm not really seeing any roadblocks on that side. Maybe, maybe just in the way that funding is distributed to it, to a degree, and also potentially in the way that governments are siloed in ministries and getting them to talk across can be really challenging. Maybe those as, as kind of challenges, but I think the bigger issue is just how we balance kind of our immediate crises type situations with the longer term building a sustainable society um, agenda. And, and for, for anyone that is interested, so you brought up a, a little while back, um, the sort of fact that the UN process governments, nations themselves, the fact that the way that a lot of this current action around energy and climate and sustainable sustainability issues is driven from, from the local sort of national level, what are ways that people can get involved now that it's moving into the action phase? We we obviously had enough of a global groundswell of support that led to 198 countries willing to sign on board with the Paris Agreement. So now that that work has been done, uh, how do people avoid sort of patting themselves on the back and saying that their job is done? Like, how can the individual continue to make an impact and continue to pressure their governments in order to ensure that this action phase is successful? Yeah, sure. Well, I think the first thing I would say is the beauty of there being 17 sustainable development goals is that that means that no country has, you know, achieved them, which was a big problem with the Millennium Development Goals because they were really looked at as this kind of developing world thing. You know, it's it's poverty. So, you know, that doesn't apply to Canada or, or Western Europe or um, the U.S. And, you know, so that issue is gone now because it, it looks at the deeper, you know, elements. So I think that what I would say first is that I think it's important for everyone to cast a kind of critical eye on your own country and where it's, it's needing some, some work, um, and, and to kind of help your government to know that those issues are important to you. So whether that's through contacting an elected official or volunteering with an organization who works on those things. But, but I think it's, it's, it's understanding that every country has work to do and, and finding out where you think your country has the work to do. So I, I would say, I would say that would be one. I think the other thing is, is, um, you know, recognizing and being supportive of change where you can, because I think the, a huge risk is that change is always scary. And what we're talking about is going to require some pretty radical change in terms of the way that we do things and the way we value things in our society. So I think anything anyone can do to get more comfortable with the idea of change or to help people who are struggling with change is, is really, really positive. And whether that's just being a better listener and kind of trying to hear people's concerns as they go through transitions or if it's, you know, digging into yourself and, and trying to figure out where your fears lie in that process. I think that that kind of looking internal piece is, is going to be really, really important. Yeah. And, and, and for anyone that wants to, to dive into the, the nitty gritty on the sustainable development goals, what's the best website that they can check out to, to understand the goals and some of the indicators behind them? For sure. So 
Uh, I'm going to shamelessly plug ISD's um, SDG Knowledge Hub, which is sdg.isd.org. And that has all the latest um, kind of information about where the processes are at, the governmental processes, what's happening around implementation. So that's um, more of a kind of news site. But if you want information about the sustainable development goals um, and and their targets and, and how they were developed, you should check out the UNDP's website, uh, UN Development Programs website. And you can just get that by typing in UNDP and SDGs or UNDP and 2030 Agenda. And that will give you everything that you need to know. They have really, really user-friendly, um, you know, pretty well-designed ways of of reading about these things and understanding them. So I, I recommend that website as well. Yeah. And, and since you're our very first interview of 2017, I have to ask you to share what are you most excited for in the year 2017? Ooh, good question. I think I am most excited for, you know, the launch of this SDG lab that we're working on. I think it's really going to be a model of, of how we can work differently on, on the SDG. So I think that that's what I'm most looking forward to. And of course the student energy summit in Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) Subtle plug. Well, actually later on in the show, we're going to have Santiago from the student energy summit team. So you're setting me up perfectly for my transitions, Kaylee. It's always my favorite thing every two years. So, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and appreciate you uh, sharing a lot of the information that you've been gathering and, and the work that you're doing over in Geneva. No problem. Always happy to be on Energy Voices. Take care. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm really excited to welcome Santiago, who is the chair of the International Student Energy Summit in 2017, taking place in Merida in Mexico. So welcome to the show, Santiago. Hello, Sean. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So you've had a an interesting couple of months, eh? Yeah, it's been, it's been rough. It's been, there's been a lot of work, a lot of uh, advancements, and a very exciting couple of months for what we do. Yeah, and so for any of our listeners that are unfamiliar with Student Energy's International Student Energy Summit, uh, I'm going to put you on the spot in giving your 30-second spiel on what is the International Student Energy Summit. Thank you, that's perfect. Uh, So the International Student Energy Summit is the most important energy-related event for students around the world who want to be a part of a transition towards a sustainable energy future. Uh, we aim to inform, unite, and inspire future change makers so they can have the tools to improve their communities, uh, regions, countries, or states uh, towards uh, a cleaner system that is more fair for everyone and that has uh, that has the needs and demands of a uh, of a growing population as well. And and so as part, we'll we'll come back to talking a little bit more about the the summit um, a little bit later on. 
But one of the things I was really interested in is that this whole episode is really about um, our recurring conversation about systems in transition. And this episode, we want to cover a little bit more of the, the global conversation about energy systems transition. And, and I was so fascinated that recently you were able to attend COP22 in Marrakesh. Um, and, and I really wanted to just get your thoughts and opinions on, on what happened at COP22. I was, I was privileged to, to be able to attend COP21 in Paris, and I, I wasn't able to attend this event. So um, for our listeners that, that maybe didn't see um, more about COP22 because it didn't maybe get the same press or profile as COP21, share with us what happened. What, what was on the ground? What were some of the big uh, activities or events that you got to participate in over in Marrakesh? Awesome. Uh, well, yes, COP22 in Marrakesh, uh, getting there was, was an enormous privilege. Uh, I, I am a strong believer that uh, during COPs is where, where a lot of, of the positions that we need are being made, and being there is an enormous privilege. Uh, and it was pretty interesting. This was a super technical COP. They were supposed to Paris, which was a political COP. Marrakesh was filled with with technical people uh, seeing and learning and exploring and, and, and searching well, for the best ways to, to fulfill the nationally determined contributions that make up the, the most part of, or the most important part of the Paris Agreement. Uh, but also, it was a very interesting cup because uh, I think it was even more difficult than Paris because we had a, we had a, a, a surprise on, on November 6th or 7th. I don't, I don't remember the exact day anymore, but, uh, but Donald Trump won the U.S. elections, which, which pretty much changed the whole uh, pace of negotiations during, during the cup. This was during the first week of of the conference. Uh, so all, all of the big delegations, and, and I'm talking about the U.S. delegation, the Canadian delegation, the, the European mm-hmm. Union delegation, the Chinese delegation, they had to, to rearrange all of their strategies in during one night to be able to, to renegotiate everything uh, in the next day. And that was a very interesting, interesting thing to see. Uh, and, and mostly because what I saw is that all the people that were at COP were completely committed to transitioning the world towards a sustainable future, and they were genuinely looking for tools and strategies to to make the most out of what happened in the U.S. and really work towards the improvement of our global uh, the global system that pollutes so much. Mm-hmm. And and were you you were on the ground the day before the negotiations when some of the these, these changes took place? Yes. So uh, what happened? I was on the ground. It was it was well for, for in Marrakesh. It was seven hours. We were seven hours ahead of of, of the U.S. Mm-hmm. So we already knew that Trump was going to win before they did in the U.S. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but, but but we went to sleep when when the when the vote counts were coming in, and we woke up with the with the news. So uh, that was an interesting day. And what we saw was a lot of. Uh, international pressure towards the U.S. delegation to, to continue doing the amazing work that they were already doing. Uh, and there were several cases in which negotiations came uh, super intense, went, were super intense. Uh, for example, uh, France, as part of the European Union delegation, proposed uh, carbon taxes on U.S. exports if they didn't come to with their part of the Paris Agreement. Uh, China went came on to to assume, to assume a, 
a leading role in the fight against climate change, at least during the COP. No? But this is this is what I saw, uh, which which was also very good news. Canada and Mexico made a joint statement uh, saying that North America, the North American region, was still super committed to fighting climate change and coming uh, coming clean, and coming uh, fulfilling the, the the contributions, the determined contributions that, that they said they were going to fulfill. So this was a very interesting thing that we saw. A lot of people from, from many different countries, backgrounds, and contexts come together to try to solve what was obviously an international crisis for climate change fighters. Yeah. And and it's interesting you bring up things like the, um, the sort of increased international... Uh, posturing from a country like China that is has sort of doubled and tripled down on their commitments to um, climate action as after COP22 and sort of in between that it is interesting to see that and and I'd like your opinion on this but I get a bit of a sense that that the train has left the station that COP21 sort of unleashed the sense that there was going to be collective global action on on mitigating climate change and it, it doesn't seem like there's any individual party i think if you had many countries in the eu and china and india and the us and canada or something like that all back out you could obviously derail it but i still do get the sense that there's a sense of optimism and hope and and almost a renewed determination that sort of an individual should not have an impact on on what the a global consensus has achieved I agree. Uh, the train has left the station. I, I believe uh, the new U.S. administration will, like China, learn that it's it's just good business. And maybe that's why uh, the COP21 was, was so successful. And that's because it established a global framework under which it is now more profitable not to pollute than it is to, to just pollute uh, without conscience of what's, of what's happening, you know? Uh, so, so I, I, I was very happy to see this year, well, uh, last COP, that that it is clear to most uh, countries that it is just the business to be sustainable, which is, I think, one of the major victories and one of the major achievements of of, of climate change fighters during the past maybe three to five years. And and so beyond some of the the sort of headlines and, and activities at COP twenty two, what were some of the more interesting sort of activities or sessions or events that you got to participate in while you were there? Yeah, awesome. Uh, so this is I'm gonna try to make this a, a question that I get asked very much. So I have uh, lots of friends who ask me. So how does a, a conference of the parties of the United Nations actually stop climate change? I mean. But how do the agreements translate into mass carbon emissions? So, and, and this is going to answer your question as well. I went to a conference called uh, Mission Innovation. So, up, COPs have uh, dozens of, of sub conferences. Some of them are side events, some of them are not, uh, mostly depending on who participates. But this Mission Innovation uh, conference had the participation of the U.S. Energy Minister, Secret- Energy Secretary, sorry, Secretary Moniz. Uh, we had the, the Energy Secretary of Saudi Arabia, the Energy Secretary of Mexico, uh, the Energy Secretary of, or the Energy Commissioner of the European Commission, uh, which is like uh, the equivalent of the European Union, and the Energy Minister of Australia. They announced uh, Mission Mission Innovation's next steps. So Mission Innovation is an initiative uh, flagshipped by the U.S. and Bill Gates, representing the president. 
private initiatives through which uh, all the countries that participate, which are 22 countries, are committed to at least doubling their uh, their public R&D funding to clean energy technologies. So uh, it was very interesting to see these people talking between them uh, and, and really coming up with ideas on how to use this new money for clean energy uh, research, clean energy technologies research, uh, and, and having these, these, these minds of so high caliber discussing what they really believe is or, or what they really believe to be the solutions uh, to the technological problems that we face. Uh, so this was one of the, the most interesting conferences to which I could attend, uh, a very high-level conference. Uh, but I also believe it's going to it's going to 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 be important in the fight against climate change. And what's interesting is that some of the the funding that we get for the International Student Energy Summit here in Mexico from the Energy Ministry exists only because this agreement exists. So, in part, what we do as an organization happens thanks to the work that, that negotiators do at, at COPS. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the sort of dynamics that I've seen at a lot of these events is it can be almost like an announcement frenzy that you have so many different things being announced and discussed. And and it's this nuanced aspect that it's hard, I think, for people to understand, but that creates a competitive pressure that even when before COP21, when countries are rolling out their INDCs, their uh, independent, their national nationally determined contributions towards climate change, you definitely had the sense that people knew that if X country had made of the following commitment and you came in with a weaker commitment that that wasn't something that was going to get covered and 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 it's it does go back to things like social psychology um and and that sort of thing but it is interesting to me when people say okay well what to your point what is happening as a result of these events and and the fact that it is gathering once a year to really discuss how we're going to move the marker in responding to global climate change it does create pressure or or creates the great excuse to say, okay, who is going to sign on board for things like um, that fund or participate in Bill Gates' innovation fund? Um, And it gives a date and a timeline that sort of continues to march those things forward. And and I think that's one of those nuanced things that's not particularly well discussed as as the sort of benefits of hosting these sorts of large-scale events. That's that's an incredible thing to see. At COPS, one person who's working on, on doing something against uh, climate change only inspires more people to do the same thing. Uh, so yeah, you have a frenzy of, of, of things that are happening all the time. Actually, what's funny is that for news of how COP is going, sometimes we went to traditional news outlets <laughs> because because when you're on the ground, so much is happening that really uh, it's very difficult to grasp the whole thing. Uh, just for maybe for someone who doesn't know the size of COP. COP22 in Marrakech, which was smaller than COP21 in Paris, has 25,000 participants. Uh, it has like 65 negotiating rooms. It has like maybe 15 parallel session rooms uh, for conferences with more than 100 people each. Uh, it has two plenary rooms with space for like uh, 2,000 people each. So, so it really is a place where a lot, a lot, a lot is happening all the time, which is also very, very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
I, I do want to make sure we take some time to talk about um, the summit and, and what you're working on there. And you gave us a, a quick overview there. So maybe to dive back in. So obviously, I've been involved in a number of the, the International Student Energy Summit events. Um, but do you want to give students maybe a bit of a flavor for uh, what they could expect. So if they if they come to attend the event in Mexico, maybe give us a sense of when is this event happening? Um, what has been sort of your driving passion in putting the program for the event together? And, and what could students sort of expect on the ground if they decide to attend the summit? Yeah, great, thanks. Uh, so the event is happening, uh, the, the opening ceremony happens on, on June 13, 2017, June 13 this year. And it ends on June 17 this year. Uh, what we do mostly, uh, we do for the love of empowering other students from all over the world. Uh, I'd like to maybe take this second to remind everyone that this is a, a summit organized entirely by students, uh, for students. Uh, I am a renewable energy engineering student, for example. Uh, and the idea of the, of, the, of the whole program of the conference is to bring together a, a set of speakers that are leaders of the current energy system. So, for example, we'll have uh, Mr. David Hutchins, who's the Renewable Energy Commissioner of the state of California. Uh, we'll have uh, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll also have uh, Fernando Ferreira, who's the, the Executive Secretary of the Latin American Energy Organization, which is the intergovernmental body that, that, that's most important, in, most important in energy in Latin America. Uh, we'll have uh, ex- energy ministers from different countries like Uruguay, uh, maybe maybe uh, France, but probably shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> and we also have some pretty high-level speakers like Mr. Adnan Amin, who is the director of the International Renewable Energy Agency, uh, giving keynote conferences about what they think uh, students should, be, should know to be a part of the future energy system. And what's most important is that we're always going to be aiming to releasing potential of the students, releasing the potential of the students that attend the summit. So we are always going to be aiming to, to give them the tools so that they are able to go back to their countries uh, and do something in their communities, uh, regions, states, uh, or, or even countries to, to, to work, to, to improve their energy system to, and, and change it towards a sustainable one. Another very interesting component of the summit is that it's entirely global. We'll have 800 students from 120 countries participating, which means uh, that students who attend are going to be able to, to get to know uh, other students, maybe from the same programs from all over the world. So, so European students interacting with African students who are going to be interacting with Southeast Asian students who are going to be interacting with Mexican students, Latin American students, and they are, they are all going to be concerned about uh, uh, transitioning the world towards the sustainable energy future. But coming from so many different backgrounds, it's going to be it's going to be great for for harnessing a multidisciplinary conversation that proposes real solutions to the challenges that we face. Mm-hmm. Uh, our main drive as a team, so we are a, a team of of some. It, it changes every semester, but we're like 35 students now. Uh, our main drive really is to 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 be able to have an impact worldwide through empowering other people to do work. So uh, that's 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 what drives us the most to do what we do. 
And and of all the the speakers that you guys have been working on, who are you most excited to hear more from? So so it's obviously uh, a challenge to try to coordinate and network with some of the the most influential energy leaders in the world. So who are you most looking forward to that you guys have been able to secure in, in hearing at the summit? I'm going to cheat a little bit because this is not a, a, a an entirely confirmed speaker, yeah. but uh, it is it is very it is highly likely that uh, Madame Rachel Kite will be attending the summit as a speaker. She's the, the executive director of the Sustainable Energy for UN Initiative, uh, and if she comes, she will she will give a keynote presentation, uh, but also she will, she will design a panel with uh, with with that will talk about uh, what she thinks are the most pressing issues of the global energy system. So that's that's one of the conferences I'm, I'm looking. I'm look, I really, really want to to be there to share to share that she's she's maybe the best informed people person regarding energy in the world. Yeah, perfect. And so for people that want to find out more about the summit, what's uh, what's the website that they can check out? Sure, they can go to www.fluentenergysummit2017.com uh, or they can always shoot an email uh, to Santiago, S-A-N-T-I-A-G-O, at studentenergy.org. Perfect. Uh, and and, and they, can, they can always ask whatever or, or go to the website. Registration opens uh, during the next week, maybe. We actually closed our pre-registration yesterday. Maybe a couple more days there if you if you hurry up. <laughs> and we have uh, twenty, we have we have two thousand four hundred students already pre-registered to attend the summit from one hundred and fifteen countries. That's crazy. So you said two thousand four hundred from one hundred and fifteen countries have pre-registered. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, that'll. Uh, so if we wind up with uh, eight hundred coming from that number of countries, that would be the most diverse event in in the history of the organization. I think that's the most diverse event in the history of the organization, but I also know that we have no no other events in the world that are energy-related for students that are that diverse, which pretty much makes it the best if you want to come. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You're not biased at all. <laughs> not, not at all. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Well, uh, I, I appreciate you coming on. Um, it's something that as we get closer to the summit, um, we'll, we'll be talking a little bit more uh, about the event and, and having potentially some speakers come online. Um, so I just appreciate you taking the time with us today to to talk about uh, COP22 and your experience there, and as well, give us a bit of a teaser uh, about the event coming up in Mexico. Awesome, Sean. Thank you very much. Uh, I was very happy to participate uh, in this interview. Uh, I'll be happy to come back as well. Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Santiago. Bye-bye. That brings to an end another month's episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins. 